Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the V-Suit Podcast, proudly hosted on Amazon... Only kidding, it's still up. This week, we've got a critical mass of Chris's. We're joined by Christopher Wells, author of the V Samurai blog at blog.christopherwells.com. Hi, Christopher. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Welcome. We've uh, managed to get you on eventually. It's taken a, yep. a few attempts, and this one <laughs> yeah. was almost uh, ruined by me. So uh, we've, we've got that one sorted. Well, one or two minor yep. time zone issues. but Yeah, yeah we get there anyway. Yeah, it's a bit of an issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So is it, it what's what's the time over with you? Is it it's it's pretty late at night, is it or uh it's uh approaching eight o'clock here, yeah, eight PM. Oh, okay. So that's, that's I had to work today, unlike you guys. Yeah, yeah, we've got a, it's it's one of the sunniest good Fridays <laughs> in the UK we've had for a long time. Uh-huh. Uh, it's uh, interesting. Great. You're guaranteed that uh <laughs> Easter weekend is just a complete washout, but it's uh yeah. it's looking shaping up to be a good one. Well, uh, uh, maybe you guys know, I mean, there's a big holiday coming up for Japan, which is Golden Week, which starts next Friday, and then we have uh, three days off the following week, so I'm looking forward to that. All right, so is, is that sort of not quite Christmas, but is that the, the main annual sort of That is the main downstairs? annual holiday when most of the companies shut down, yeah. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. And I guess the companies sort of shut down as one. Uh, I know um, we've got a few sort of big Japanese corporations that have got head offices mm-hmm. near us, and they observe their entire sort of you know factory oh, shutdown. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, everyone goes home. No, no one does any business for a week. It's uh, it's quite unusual. <laughs> yeah, they probably don't have much to do when uh, all the all the businesses are shut down in Japan. Everybody is trying to close their quarterly numbers and things like that. So yeah. yeah. I guess it's a good time to do some IT maintenance if, uh, mm-hmm. if there are some, yeah, those firmware upgrades yep. of the SAN, which are always going to be a painful one to do. <laughs> yep. yep. Um, but as I understand it, you've been sort of doing uh, using uh, one of the uh, sort of VMware uh, options that everyone sort of talks about, and some people set up, but not that many people have to sort of invoke for live of um, mm-hmm. SRM. Yep. Yeah, um, I I think that. The blog article that you guys are, well, I mean, that I documented our, our situation in um, has gotten quite a lot of traction. I understand uh, it's been passed around through the internal VMware blogs as well as, like, uh, being sent out by, you know, the VMware partners uh, to the VMware partners and, and so forth. So, yeah, um, it's uh, pretty amazing the amount of uh, response I've gotten, which is pretty cool. But, uh, I mean, it's, yeah, like you said, I, I think few companies actually get to invoke SRM for what it was intended for. So we're very thankful that, you know, we were able to recover from the earthquake in a small way f- from an IT perspective by yep. using a VMware product. It's pretty, pretty cool, actually. So I'm guessing it, it was just sort of one less thing to worry about. You had uh, plenty, exactly, of things, yeah. plenty of things on your plate at the time and, uh, you know, not having to worry about, you know, your core infrastructure. Uh, yeah, I only wish you know more of our infrastructure was virtualized, and then we would have had even even less to do. We would have had more stuff would have been automated to our other data center, which would have been nice. But you know, future planning, I guess, will you know encompass those kind of things. So, and how many VMs was it that you uh, failed over from data center to data center? Only about ten, but ten VMs that are like all linked to an SLA to external customers. So we're you know actually doing some ASP type services to um, some of our customers um, basically for, you know, uh, authentication of like uh, food products and things like this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, I mean, it, it was some stuff that needed to be up and running um, throughout 
this kind of situation. So those are were our first target for putting into uh, SRM. So uh, we plan to expand it because we have another uh, service right now that we're hosting in uh, offsite data center that we'll be moving into uh, into this this cluster um, that's covered are, by are SRM. Are you allowed to say who you work for? You can put, feel free. Yeah, to it's it. a. TUV Rhineland is the company. Um, we actually do test, technical testing and certification, uh, okay, so and actually of services, IT services. Yeah, exactly. Uh, of you know, um, you know, photovoltaic cells, um, medical equipment, uh, uh, things like this, and uh, pretty big in Germany testing cars and so forth. So. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, I mean, even even uh, one of the guys that had mentioned that my uh, post was. Uh, uh, Passing around the internal internals of VMware, said I should submit this as a call to pay, call for papers for VMworld. So I actually yeah. just quickly submitted something. So we'll see if that maybe maybe whoever's listening to this podcast can help propel that to. I, believe, a... I don't know if it's got to the pub. <laughs> the papers have got to the public vote yet, have they? I don't think so, but no, I, I mean, uh, probably be coming so, in so the next be few at the weeks. Internal um, side. Yeah, uh, I, think I looked so. about doing one, but then I realized read how many people had submitted and thought... Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, a pretty it's... insane amounts. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure. <laughs> Some people submitting multiple multiple entries, I'm sure, as well. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, uh, Christopher, I, I, I'm kind yes. of interested in, in uh, how this... I, I, I read your blog post and the, the, mm-hmm. the uh, My Earthquake Experience. Uh, but, <laughs> okay, that was the one previous, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but 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 actually, how how does it kind of feel to be in the middle of this? Disregard the the, the IT. Okay. Yeah. For now, but but the actual physical experience of being in the middle of something like that. Well, I mean, it, it. Yeah, I'm pretty thankful that I'm you know a couple hundred kilometers away from the epicenter. No doubt, um, because actually, believe it or not, um, my house. I actually have a house here, and my house is like literally right on Tokyo Bay so hmm. um, it's one of the inlets but still if there was an earthquake closer to here I'm sure there would be a pretty big uh, tsunami effect so I'm kind of happy that I'm far enough away to not have account- encountered that because it seems like the aftermath of the tsunami was kind of the real brunt of the of the problem and then of course yeah. the resulting uh, nuclear situation now so hmm. I mean at the time when it happened it was me talking with my manager at my desk um, you know, just, you know, getting back from lunch after maybe one hour, and uh, we were just, oh, we're having an earthquake, uh, kind of nonchalant about it, and it kind of rapidly, like within five to ten seconds, accelerated in both kind of force and speed. Um, I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, the security door that leads out to the, you know, common area was literally shaking in the door frame. So, hmm. I mean, this is a pretty solid, you know, you know steel you know, win- window windows, but still, it was shaking quite considerably. It was pretty wow. amazing. And then uh, shortly after that, we left the building, uh, and there was a pretty strong aftershock immediately following. And uh, traffic lines were, you know, swaying back and forth. Trees were swaying back and forth. Um, cars on the road were literally, you know, like delivery trucks with, you know, a decent amount of uh, springs were, you know, sw- <laughs> swaying back and forth and things like this. It was pretty, pretty unreal experience. And then, uh, you know, immediately following that, they sent everybody home, except there were no trains running, of course. So I ended up uh, having to sit in a cafe, uh, I think a donut shop with some colleagues. And I finally got a hold of my wife about maybe six hours later. 
<laughs> and uh, she came actually. She drove up, uh, took her four hours for what's normally an hour and a half or two hour drive. She picked me up, and I I made the drive home. And I, I think we ended up getting home around four or five in the morning. So it was uh, quite quite a long long night, long day, and then the aftermath started. And you know, I mean, you guys have been following most of the stuff that's been going on with that. So yeah, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh. Yeah, it's got to be pretty intense being in the middle of something like that. Yeah, it's yep. uh, it's yep. kind of unreal, I guess, for everyone who yeah. hasn't been been in the midst of something like that sure. ever. Sure. Uh, no, that's. Uh, I'm. I mean, we have the small, you know, like you said, small earthquakes. You know, once a week or so, we have a small earthquake that we might feel. Or, I mean, well, now it's more than once a week. Um, if we have something that we can feel, you know, a little bit of shaking, it's you typically like once a month or something. So this is a whole, whole matter entirely. So whole different matter entirely. So, uh, does, I mean, does that mean that, uh, say, if you've got a network operation center, do they have a screen dedicated with sort of seismic readouts as well? People sort of keeping an eye on that. Is you know, people follow more closely. Or? That would make sense. Um, I think that's uh, well. I mean, what we do have here is a is quite quite an amazing infrastructure of um, early warning systems. Um, anyway, yeah. So we have this early warning system that's uh, enabled on the three major cell phone carriers here, um, where it literally sends out a, a message directly to your phone within maybe five five seconds before the actual earthquake. You know, the waves arrive. Hmm. So if it's a large earthquake, you can get under a desk or whatever and deal with the problem, um, hopefully. <laughs> uh, in addition to that, um, we have um, some pretty good websites from the meteorological agency that, that uh, put out updates of, uh, of the immediate, you know, within probably one to two minutes, they post the magnitude and what areas were affected. So the, the, from that perspective, they're pretty, uh, pretty, pretty quick about getting information about out to people so yeah i guess you know if you had something that um because your srm failure was that a uh, a manual or an automated failover it, it did end up being a manual failover because we we had power we had internet in our office uh in in the tokyo area so yep. we ended up failing over manually but it was a matter of we need to fail over quickly because we're gonna the power company is gonna have a power outage in you know two hours so we had a very short notice to move everything over, um, but it was nice. I did have time to actually test the failover plan just a couple more times, just to be sure. But then, quick, very quickly after that, we actually had to perform the failover, and then we did so with um, some of our physical S physical um, uh, IT systems as well. So, yeah, it was pretty uh, pretty pretty quickly done and so done fairly. At least for the VM stuff. So, so you guys didn't actually have any any damage done to physical systems. It was just a just a power outage. Essentially, yeah. So, okay. yep. Yeah, it's, you know, it still you know, definitely counts as a, a disaster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I mean, I've I've seen other ends of scale of uh, people who've you know guys who've been on call over a weekend. Uh, got a phone call on a Saturday morning. Um, yeah, the Spanish office. Yeah, what about it? It's burnt to the ground. Oh, <laughs> and you know we've got some servers somewhere on a site, but they haven't got an OS on them, and we've got some tapes heading their way, and we think the tape drive's going to fit. 
um, and you better start installing Exchange pretty quickly. And eventually, I believe the um, the plans they had, they got Exchange back up and running with a data in recovery quite fast. But that, that's to me, you know, that that's a disaster recovery when you've got a massive unplanned issue. Sure. <laughs> that, that yeah, I that, think yeah, you don't have mm. the the luxury, as it were, of being able to. Well, we're going to shut these down now. Um, yeah, I think what was what was pretty good is that my company uh, had the f- foresight to actually get like um, you know ha- the fact that we had two sites that were set up in SRM, but even our some of our physical systems were you know important physical systems were you know actually mirrored in the in our other office, so it was a matter of turning on hardware, you know, bringing up uh, uh, backups of databases and things like this, and getting systems up. But it was nowhere near as automated or as you know smooth as what we were able to accomplish with the SRM. So that was that was quite convenient. Yeah, the number so. of manual steps in so many <laughs> uh, disaster recovery procedures. You, you look mm. at them. You look at the runbook for a given application. You think, well, that's okay if it's just that application. But mm. when you you're running twenty, thirty, forty applications, and you've got to work out right, well, what order does that does that need to be done? Um, can we start doing a restore on that one before we've done the restore on the other application? Well, hang on a sec. No, we can't even run the restore because we haven't got AD at the moment. Um, and it can you know, get, I suspect, quite complex. That's why you get these mm-hmm. massive uh, disaster recovery run books, which sure. essentially uh, SRM sort of tries to automate that process. And exactly. if you are 100% virtual, you're laughing. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, doing it the, the old physical way, I can see is have a lot of people running around like a headless chicken if you're not <laughs> exactly the, the human element yep. of it is probably the, the most difficult part to manage mm-hmm. yeah I mean yeah. Uh, it was like I said it was you know nice that we were able to use it um, there was definitely some systems that I, I don't even know if the application owners even know the RTO and the RPO of some of the applications that we have but um, you know, along going along with the idea of the, my company had the foresight to at least have the hardware and the software enabled to be able to do this. Um, I mean, they're even talking about providing these kind of services to Japanese customers now because we are getting inquiries about you know doing business continuity consulting and things like this. Amazingly enough, which is actually something that my company um, does in that's in our business portfolio, which is pretty pretty coincidental. It's kind of funny. Yeah, I was going to so, say, I, yeah. I imagine you're not going to have any problem getting some more SRM licenses signed off. <laughs> yeah, probably not. That's got to be Actually, a really no, easy conversation no. with your manager. You know that thing that well, completely saved our ass? Yeah, can we buy some more of it? Sure. <laughs> How much believe, do you want? Believe it or not, guys, I mean, we, we bought this about two years ago, uh, and... Um, we actually had both our reseller and VMware come on site when we were negotiating the contract for this, and uh, we ended up licensing eight eight hosts, sixteen CPUs worth of SRM. So if you, I don't know what the cost of that is, but it's really expensive. This was all before the per VM licensing, and from what I understand, even even further is that we were one of the one of the first customers in Japan using this, which I mentioned in the you know in the article, which is with the you know the environment of seismic activity here and tsunamis and all this stuff it's just i guess it's just that the companies don't know about it because i can't imagine that they would take the risk you know if they did know about it and you know could could license it for their critical services you know is is there a limitation of srm because of it, it relying on the underlying storage replication at present right uh, yeah, that's true. So that yeah. you're, you're going to replicate to a data center that, unless you're going for a really, you've got you know 
you've spent X millions on a uh, EMC VPlex or thing, something that that data center you're replicating to could well be within the same area, you know, not so much disaster zone, but could be subsequent uh, to a, a similar failure itself. Well, I mean, we're not using it in that way. We're actually not using stretch VLANs, you know, without getting into too much specifics. We're not using stretch VLANs. We're using things like, I mean, we had to do a couple of manual steps when it comes to changing DNS, but that's something that I've been actually talking with the VMware guys. There's, if we use dynamic DNS and DHCP, we can kind of get around those issues without having to really do any manual manual process, which is kind of cool. So. Mm. Okay, that's, that's yeah. interesting. Um, but what I was thinking more of the storage replication. Um, oh well, the storage replication. I mean, the licenses for that is usually expensive, but I mean, it's not in the millions dollars range. I wouldn't say. True, but but what about the? Isn't there a? Uh, I guess you don't you don't really need a synchronous storage replication for this sort of. No, thing. no, we're not using synchronous storage replication. We're talking usually like around a ten minute lag time. So. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it reminds so it's me back to a, yeah. a geo clustering conversation. I think we had a few few episodes back <laughs> when I was looking at synchronous. Um, oh yeah, that's and a, a whole other level. <laughs> still wouldn't work because they've got to be within visual distance or well, that's true. Yeah, because of latency or something anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and yeah, it just looks like it would be yeah. doomed to expensive failure. Yeah, t- 10 kilometers I don't think would have helped us in this situation. Yeah, doing rolling power outages won't, it, it won't help you when the company has to do that. So you need to something, something else. But I, but I hope, uh, um, I, w- I would guess that Japan and other uh, places like like it with that kind of activity that's pretty it's pretty I would guess it would be more normal for companies there to have detailed disaster recovery plans than uh, I would guess that rather than in, in Europe for instance where you it's a our ground here is pretty stable it doesn't move around yeah. a lot yeah so it, but but the company I work for, actually, we, we have set up a recovery site and a secondary server or, or data center. Uh, uh, so I, I've been able to to get management in our end to to understand the risks of a fire or a water leakage or whatever. But in my experience, usually it takes a disaster to basically make a management understand that their IT infrastructure is vulnerable if they don't do anything with regards to a secondary location. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. The uh, the company that's had the uh, the fire um, suddenly started investing a considerable amount of money in uh, business continuity planning and business continuity practices after they you know, had a, one of their global head offices burned down. Um, yeah. you know, uh, I do wonder whether there was a cynical IT admin walking around with a can of petrol somewhere. Um, <laughs> Really Where's my zippo? <laughs> Doing a bit of a zippo raid in, in the server. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it worries me. Um, you know, I know of offices that are underneath the flight path from a major airport. And, well, if there's a plane that goes up a little bit, then comes all the way back down again, um, it's going to land right on top of your offices. Yeah, I have some experience with data centers uh, where planes are landing directly over them. Kind exactly. of a strange place for a data center, but... 
Yeah, it should should be hey. lucky the the Concord that fell down. I hate a hotel, not a data center, but it it's it can happen. You it know? wasn't yeah. that lucky for the people in the hotel room, to be honest. But, no, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <It was laughs> they going out to buy a lottery yeah. ticket that day. Um, yeah. Here I am trying to be the human guy, trying to figure out <laughs> how, how life in Japan was, and then I skip over to lucky hitting a hotel another day. Yeah, like, French people died, <laughs> going, what the hell is this aircraft just coming through my window? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just just one more thing to add. I mean, this you'd be. I think you'd be a little bit surprised. I mean, Japan is now. I mean being mentioned in the earnings call and things like this uh, Japan is starting to become a large market for VMware but I think a lot of a lot of companies IT infrastructures are, are a bit behind here I would say for the most part I know mostly what people outside of Japan see is you know the consumer electronics TVs video games mm-hmm. things like this mm-hmm. but really when you think about it back end IT systems are not something you'd see unless you you know worked here for a while and I can say for one I mean I, I've seen uh, companies that still using prevalently excel spreadsheets and you know file drawers and things like this so i mean it's 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 coming along um i think this opened a lot of eyes to you know products like vmware that will help um vmware has even asked me to come and talk to some of their other customers about how we were able to use srm and and use it as i don't know marketing opportunity or something i'm not really sure but uh i mean it's it's coming along i think you know, in the future, I think there's going to be it's going to be on the minds of a lot of companies here. So, just in yeah. general, both for physical I'm and virtual, that, uh, people like yeah. Veeam haven't tried to um, yeah, market heavily to that sort of thing because mm-hmm. I would have thought you can do Veeam replication for a lot mm-hmm. cheaper than you could do SRM and Veeam replication mm-hmm. with some scripts or even uh, Gabe's uh, ghetto SRM mm-hmm. uh, PowerShell <laughs> sort of failovers that uh, he talked about a, a few episodes back um, would sell like proverbial hotcakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, that's an easy and, and, and relatively cheap way to get into having some sort of disaster recovery plan uh, or and some kind of setup for it. Uh, that's what we're using, so it, it works well for us. And it depends on how big the organization is and how critical the data is, but but. But you you can do a lot of cool stuff with pretty simple means as long as you virtualize stuff and you can move it move it around, and that's the kind of the key factor in it. So you you need to virtualize it. You need to get rid of the hardware dependencies and everything, and and, and be able to move your data dynamically around between data centers. Uh, yep. So you, you don't need the the entire replicated SAM stuff right, to be able to do something. No, yeah. and I think it is seen, and it certainly was back in the days when I was sort of looking at SRM. As soon as they said, "Yeah, you need a replicated SAN," I said, "I'm sorry, we're going to have to stop this conversation now because I don't have, <laughs> I can't afford one, and they won't buy yeah. me one." Um, so to be able to do that sort of functionality without having to, uh, you know, purchase, go and spend some money with your storage vendor, uh, I mm. think is probably a, a pretty key win. Mm-hmm. Well, they've been talking for a while in, um, that the new version of SRM is going to include its own host space replication. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a feature right. they've been throwing around, I think, yeah. Something something to look forward to, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So how, how's general life in, in Tokyo now? Is it starting um, to revert to some kind of normalcy, or is it just, uh, I don't know, uh, <laughs> how's the city working? How's the country working at all? Uh, 
I have a strange, probably a strange anecdote for you about this. So immediately following the earthquake, you know how food and water and things like this were in short supply. They even, you know, uh, at one point they said that the water was contaminated and the children shouldn't drink water. And uh, I mean, one thing that is, you know, maybe normal or you would think strange that they wouldn't have in stock at the stores. But yogurt is apparently something that takes a lot of electricity to produce. And today I was for the very first time able to find like a, you know, drinking yogurt in the convenience store on my way home from work today. So if that's any indication, I guess things are getting back to normal, I guess. I mean, it's, you know, slowly but surely, you know, things are coming along, I think. Um, uh, a colleague and I went to work or went to uh, lunch at a sushi restaurant yesterday as well. And I think there's a lot of fear of the, you know, contamination of the, you know, fishing industry and things like this. So it was pretty much empty. But I mean, we were in there, they were, you know, making sushi. It wasn't completely empty. There was a, you know, a couple of other, you know, uh, tables filled with people. But, you know, it's uh, slowly but surely it's coming along, I think. So. I can say if they, they have run out of water, I've got this brilliant energy drink. Uh, <laughs> make, sure, make sure you put that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. and we uh, seriously I'll, I'll, I will take a take a photo of it. It'll go on the show notes. But, you, know, you can imagine the public service signs: save water, drink pussy. <laughs> we seriously got to try and get a sponsorship from these guys. Oh man. <laughs> I've seen, I remember seeing one in um, Prague. the The local sort of you know, Red Bull esque type drink was called Semtex, <laughs> nice. which, which I thought was an interesting one. Uh, Semtex. Okay. Yeah, yeah of Japan, course. I always name my drinks after plastic explosive. Japan yep. has quite a few different energy drinks, correct? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I can't think of any off the top of my head. There's I, like two hundred of them. Bread. Yeah. Wow. They do have a lot of energy drinks and just products with just extremely funny names like uh, chocolate named Crunky and things like this. Yeah. So <laughs> you, you find some pretty strange stuff over here. That's that's no question. Stra- I'm sure I've seen strawberry chocolate over there seem to be a big thing. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty common. Chocolate. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Sure. And there was yeah, a, a UK. <laughs> recalled having a drink actually named Cool Piss was kind of that was kind of <laughs> cool. <laughs> Your your pronunciation is slightly off. I believe you're talking about Kalpis. Yes. It's like a yogurt <laughs> yogurty drink. Uh, it's quite interesting. <laughs> but yeah, very very unfortunate name, uh, yeah. I guess. Yeah. They should they should sell some at a storage store and call it Twit Piss instead, I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Uh, you put a big blue N on one side and a big big blue E on the other and you get to choose. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> you could basically check which energy drink melts your face off, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the face yeah. melter. So good at melting. Face melting your- energy drink. <laughs> <laughs> as described by... I'm, I'm going to email Chad yeah. as we speak. <laughs> There's an opportunity there, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Especially for, uh, I'm sure you can get like custom cans printed. You just got to order a few crates of it, and that'll be the best. <laughs> Didn't um, someone did that actually? I'm sure last year's VM World. Yeah, someone had cans of something it, there. I didn't it, pick it up. Was it CA or Quest? There was some energy drink sort of labeled, you know, virtualization agility or. Yeah, CA. I would be terrified to drink anything Quest would hand me. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, it might taste a Kool Aid. 
It would, it would most definitely repeat on you and phone you up eight times a day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, if any uh, energy drink vendors would like us to sponsor them, we'd be more than happy. <laughs> Pretty good at slogans after a while. So. Yeah, yeah, we can do slogans. It's great. Yeah. We can giggle a bit and it'll be, it'll be fine. Um, yeah, the, the other thing, uh, I heard your, your name taken in vain on the um, Communities Roundtable. Uh, I was listening to yesterday about Cloud Foundry. Really? Uh, I heard yeah. sort of some of the announcement. I didn't sort of listen into the whole thing, and I've tried to sort of assimilate it. And the closest I can, uh, you know, understand for myself is it's a little bit like Azure, but it's not Microsoft, and it's a bit more flexible. But uh, what's what's your take on it? Yeah, the whole idea is openness. Um, I did a bit of, you know, I don't know how you, I guess the term that they call it is DevOps or Cloud Ops now is what they're, we're talking. So it's just um, a blend, blending between, you know, uh, I, I did a bit of the blend between, you know, de- developer support and system admin. So okay. um, that's DevOps basically what a developer loose on a production system with admin rights. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> nothing like that. I don't like <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had I had to do you know a lot of uh, code releases. I was kind of the release manager when it came release day for a lot of our you know uh, web projects. Okay. So it was a lot of it was coordinating and getting you know um, application servers set up with a standardized image and things like this. Uh, the mini cloud that they're talking about, uh, I don't know if you're so the mini cloud is the thing that you can put in your own data center and you're making put in your private cloud to devo- to deploy applications on top of. Okay, that's so gonna re- it's another you know, abstraction layer that sits. Exactly. So you've got a VM, you install Cloud Foundry into that VM, or it, it's as an appliance, and your code runs on top of that. So it's more like the operating exactly. system layer. It's, yeah, I would say it is. I mean, it's we're talking platform layer, so it's a very you know just enough OS probably is what they probably want to want to call it or whatever. So you the developers. Don't have to care about the underlying OS. That that job is still left to us sysadmins. So getting the mini cloud installed and maintained and and things like this and you know scaling it from a you know the Im- underlying infrastructure. So we're t- this is something that gets deployed on top of the infrastructure as a service layer, so so to speak. I guess yeah. Yep. So I mean we'll have plenty of work to do. This isn't going to put us out of jobs, but um, it'd probably be wise you know if you're interested in this area to you know start looking at Ruby and things like Chef, which is this. Um, uh, automation platform for you know setting up um, servers for like uh, particular types of jo- uh, roles. So you can say uh, you know this server is to be deployed as an application server, and I guess uh, this this uh, product called Chef or project project called Chef will you know basically just apply scripts to it, install all the you know packages that it requires to become that role, and, and then you on top of that you can deploy um, you know all these uh, mini clouds and all these other uh, you know. Uh, PaaS services, I guess. If it's got just enough OS, um, presumably the underlying uh, language compilers and, you know, uh, I guess DLLs that you're going to be deploying to those uh, nodes, which is probably mm-hmm. the best way of referring to it within the environment, those are going to require presumably patching of some form. So there is, there's still got to be if where, where there's a patch, there's got to be a sysadmin waiting to reboot a server. Sure. Um, so well, there is, as you say, there's undoubtedly work for it. But with sure. these cut down OSs and the Neo appliance model, the patching mm-hmm. of appliances is always a little bit fuzzy. 
because who owns the appliance? Is it the developer? Is it the application that owns the appliance, or is it the um, the infrastructure that owns the appliance? And who's responsible for providing those patches? And who gets blamed yeah. when something goes wrong? <laughs> yeah, I think undoubtedly this is going to mean more work for us. Sysadmins, <laughs> <It's a> <laughs> that that is. Um, I think MiniCloud is probably designed to like automatically take a node out, just like you do when you put a, a you know a VM host into maintenance mode. There'll be some kind of maintenance mode for each of these PaaS nodes, and it'll patch it and bring it back into the cluster. So I mean, I think it's smart enough to know if a, if a node is down and things like this, and it automatically brings it out of the cluster. As well as I don't know if you guys watched any of the webinars, it, it can automatically scale to like hundreds of instances in like 8 or 10 seconds so it's pretty amazing yeah, it, it seems to do the whole um, lukewarm standby doesn't it or hot standby virtually it seems that way yeah So, uh, which reminds yep. me of something <laughs> that was done years and years and years ago and I think it was pre-virtualization um, by IBM and Tivoli called Computing On Demand hmm which was kind of a platform as a service in that you had um, for every live image you had sort of two standby images ready to go and these were uh, deployed to, to pretty much boot off sound off a blade so they were booted but not actually connected to the network and that you could scale up instantly um, that that sounds along the lines of a little bit of what Cloud Foundry is, is trying to accomplish I mean to me from a I don't know from a sysadmin perspective that's kind of the most interesting part of this whole thing is their idea for you know doing auto scaling and basically um, having a monitoring system that can take advantage of these you know cloud foundry call API calls that can you know um, send send these you know, commands to spin up a hundred more instances so you can put this code into your application if your application sees that it's becoming latent latent to the data source you know the latency is increasing to the you know to the to the database backend these uh, mongodb and all these new no no sql uh, platforms it can automatically spin off its own instances so it's a very much a form of ai you know Sh i think sean clark would like it a lot Skynet. It's, it's, it's all going to be very sky, skynet -y, but Very uh, skynet, uh, yeah. The, all of these sort of definitely new cool applications, you know, so Hadoop and NoSQL and things, um, they sound, you know, very clever and dynamic, but isn't that going to require a complete ground-up change of every application that people are using? It, it, this is going to be um, a process that's going to take as long to migrate as when we came off AS400s and started using x86-based systems. There are still yeah. people using AS400s. Yeah, I know some people are still regularly using those. <laughs> um, if I could... If I could take a quote from, I mean, Paul Meritz is actually even even talking about this. If you if you listen to his most recent message re relating to you know what these all these PaaS services, the V Fabric and things like this are moving towards, is that now that we've freed up the IT resources by doing virtualization and decreasing the IT spend on you know physical hardware, they can companies can now use their IT budgets to re redo their applications. So I think yeah. that's okay. the type of direction that cloud, you know cloud foundry is allowing them to move these applications to a more flexible framework and have it in a in a point where it can auto scale just like you were able to do you know more on the fly with the infrastructure as a service but do this at the application yeah. layer and i think i mean it's going to take some time for this to happen but i i i'm pretty much on message i think with paul merits when it comes to this stuff i can kind of see that the writing is on the wall from that perspective i i think cloud is a bigger 
probably revolution than you know virtualization itself you know it's the foundation it's a required piece but cloud is i think going to be just a whole nother scale of uh, of innovation so hmm. yeah it, i mean uh, there's it it sounds like there's a lot of the, the application side that um people are going to have to get their heads around you know yep. sort of you know longer thinking of a mail server a web server mm-hmm. a sql server sure um and you know they're trying to abstract it I think a lot of people do have a bit of a mental stall, myself included, as thinking, sure. well, okay, how, do, how does this go, go up to being different um, <laughs> different instances? Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, I could kind of see uh, a little bit. I mean, I can't, obviously, I didn't have any inside, inside knowledge of the Spring Source acquisition, but I could kind of see the direction they were heading in with these kind of type services. Um, when they first did the acquisition, but I, of course, I had no idea to the what level they wanted to take it. But they're they're doing some pretty innovative stuff. I think they've kind of disrupted the industry quite a bit. They're probably you know scaring Microsoft and scaring uh, you know Rackspace and these other companies that are trying to you know put out these cloud services now. So as well as maybe Amazon. Amazon is still the 500 pound gorilla, so to speak. But um, they've been having some issues lately. So yeah, <laughs> yeah it's in the a, an interesting one, that isn't it? Um, yep. that so many people that you didn't know used Amazon <laughs> it's just been become really quite apparent that they did because they've had an outage but not all yep. of them um, and it appears that depending on how you designed your application to sit on Amazon um, if you put all of your eggs in the cheapest basket which happened to be that <laughs> East Coast <laughs> data center nice. the, East, the East Coast one Mm-hmm. Um, if I you think so. Yeah. Deploy all of your um, instances there, and that one had an outage. Then, you know, Amazon aren't guaranteeing that you're going to be a lot. You know, that that's going to be resilient. It's it's engineered for the resilience, but mm. uh, it wasn't. There's no there was no sort of underlying SLA about its resilience. Yeah, we've looked into into getting some Amazon stuff, and if you notice, if you read uh, like their uptime that they that they guarantee they say oh well you have like maybe a 70 70 chance of losing all your data once we have an outage <laughs> it's, it's completely crazy wow <laughs> that's, that's quite a lot really isn't yeah. it <laughs> whatever happened to five nines i mean come on <laughs> yeah doesn't exist in amazon's world apparently well, i got five nine at least not 59%. yet <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, it, it's hard to get sort of caught up in the T's and C's. And in fact, this is an article I was reading this morning from uh, Chris Evans, a storage architect blog. I'll uh, link it in the show notes. You know, ex- explaining that you kind of, if you didn't really engineer your application to be resilient and just hoped that by dumping all of your instances into the same data center, which is effectively what's been done, I don't think they can guarantee that when you d- dump a uh, an AWS instance into a, a given region, they won't all be in the different data centers. Uh, or if they have a, a, reg- a region level issue, which is what they had, um, then you're kind of stuffed. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Has, have many pe- people have lost reputation, but have they actually lost money from it? You know, is Foursquare going down being that critical for everyone? Somebody's like, oh, I can't check into my bathroom now. I'll wait an hour. <laughs> <laughs> <You know. laughs> I'll just tie it up in it. It's not important. Right? 
I mean, surprisingly enough, I mean, I, I actually am a, a user of uh, Rackspace cloud services because they're probably about the most cheap cheap option right now. Um, I even have, you know, just two instances, the smallest instances, just to try out more and get familiar with how they're using cloud and how, you know, companies are, are, are deploying this kind of stuff. And I even asked them, you know, I said, because uh, they have two data centers, I said, I'd like to create two servers, but I want to have them into two different data centers. And when I asked this, they were like, why, why would you want to do that? Well, you know, I was like, um, maybe in case one of the data centers goes offline. Uh, you know, so there's, you know, even there, I mean, mind you, it was one of their tech support people. But still, I mean, it's not in the front of everybody's mind to architect their system for redundancy in this, in this way. You know, so it's, it's a matter of training and, you know, experience and these types of things. Edu- these types of outages educate people on, you know, having a re- plan of redundancy, you know, so... Yeah, I think it is assumed that the cloud is resilient. <laughs> there, there, there seems to be this underlying, well, it's in the cloud, it'll be fine. But, you know, you've got to realize the reality of the fact that, okay, in certain data centers, it might be, um, you know, homebrewed servers like, uh, fa- you know, the Facebook stuff, and they might be very specialized bits of hardware, but it's still hardware in a data center with power network and storage all connecting to it and if something physical occurs to those or there's a problem with a given batch of components that have all gone into the same bit of hardware mm-hmm. um, it, it can fail just like any other kit the fact that you don't know necessarily know exactly in what row rack or um, you know unit your server is in mm-hmm. because you shouldn't care because it's abstracted um, doesn't mean that it can't go wrong sure at some point, somebody has to care about it. It's probably the on-site, you know, uh, knock administrator or you know whoever is racking the servers. But at some level, it's going to have to be get taken care of by someone. Yeah. You just really hope they're monitoring nope. systems in a different cloud. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> if that, if that redundant monitoring systems. Yeah. That's a topic for a whole another conversation. Yeah. So, uh, a bit of a, a slightly going off on a, a little tangent about monitoring systems and what what you need from a monitoring system and I've come to the opinion that there's two different types of things that people want from a monitoring system. One, they want it to look cool. They want managers specifically and board level people want a monitoring system to have flashing lights, grass, and if it's in 3D and spinning <laughs> round well they'll 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 have a monitor, you know, they'll have a monitoring screen in their office. <laughs> but the people that are using that monitoring system want to know two things. They want to know, A, is the monitoring system working? B, is there anything wrong? And if that can be done with an email every morning saying, yeah, monitoring system's working brilliantly, and no, there's nothing wrong, um, that's that's all you need to know. Uh, and it, it, it seems that there's potentially a lot of money spent in the visualization of monitoring that requires, if you were to just use that, requires you to remember were there eight or nine red dots on that, on you know, <laughs> on the clown's jacket that you've used to represent your data center? That well, oh, it's got an extra red dot that it didn't have before. That must mean there's something wrong. I'll go and drill into it. But the fact is that monitor was behind me uh, on a different wall of the desk that I sit in, so I didn't see it anyway. Um, because it had to be on that wall so that people walking past the knock could see that I've got this marvellous representation of a clown on my, uh, <laughs> my, my data centre. Uh, he, he's but, got an extra that, button. 
but that screen makes me feel warm and fuzzy at night. Exactly. exactly. So it is achieving purpose <laughs> A. <but> it's, <laughs> it's a bit like putting wheels on tomato. It's quite expensive, but utterly useless. <laughs> 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 um, so, yeah. Uh, no, it's, you know, I've, I've, I've been looking at purchasing some monitoring products at the moment, and some of them, they look lovely. Mm. But there's there's just this two levels they they'll say yeah we look great so well, yeah, but what do you actually do you know can you dynamic threshold can you uh, is anything that crosses this static line always going to be bad um, that kind of those kind of things always end up being some kind of professional services to do custom scripting and checking for content you know and and yeah, whether the content is showing on the screen that, and i haven't been hacked and yeah, sure. we'll, we'll send a consultant to be on site with you for six weeks at the cost <laughs> exactly. of a thousand dollars a day um, for this three hundred dollar hardware. <laughs> just, you know, Otherwise, all it does is ping checks. Seems like right. I mean, for the most part, <laughs> yeah. that's uh, about it. it. It's just the uh, the graphical API to add the button to the clown clown's jacket. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. Oh no, his flowers turn green. What does that mean? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So, moving smoothly from uh, clown's jackets to bacon, um, you, you recently <laughs> attended Tech Field Day. Uh, was, it, was it another San Jose one? Yeah, that was uh, the same one with Sean and uh, Eric Siebert and a few, a couple other virtualization guys. Um, it ended up being like uh, several storage guys and one back, you know, um, uh, Mr. Backup. Um, uh, was Curtis there a token network as well? Um, there were a couple of network guys at this one, so this was a uh, you know data data center focused uh, tech okay. field day. This was back in February, and uh, we ended up going to let's see, Symantec, um, Drobo, Druva, which is this new um, corporate desktop backup software. Um, then from there, we had a little session with Zangati, and then uh, day two was uh, HP uh, NetX, which does the uh, Hyper IP. Um, uh, network uh, uh, compression product. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm. And then uh, who uh, Infoblox, which does like IP address management and things like this. So, yeah, it was uh, quite interesting. Uh, I ended up uh, seeing that they were finalizing some of the attendees, and I think I talked to some of my network of people, and uh, um, you know, ended up getting an invite from Steven. So it, it ended up working out quite nicely. So. Oh, fantastic! You know, it's. I, yeah. I, I think ha- having been to an event myself, um, you know, I, I, we've I've said before on the show that it, it's a great experience. Um, and not only is it a great experience personally, but I think that the information that comes out of the the Tech Field Day events filters the you know the the little ripples that it causes from uh, a, a hotel sort of conference room in uh, <laughs> San Jose. Work their way across the world. There are people that you know, you know, that now know about bacon as a service uh, as provided by, <laughs> by Zangarzi. Yeah, it's, uh, that, that, that was quite it. the interesting story. That was like really uh, in time service from uh, Zangarzi for sure. They <laughs> they were they were following the Twitter feed uh, quite closely that day, I suppose. <laughs> so that was pretty yeah. pretty interesting. So. Yep. And I, I think a, you, know, you do get to see technologies that you wouldn't necessarily see, or you certainly wouldn't. You wouldn't necessarily have a sales rep come into your company to come and talk about it because you're interested in it as a, um, as someone you know, follow, a follower of technology, and you know, there's possibly some relevance to your own personal sale. 
so mm. you wouldn't necessarily have a a rep come in and, and pitch at you for it because you're probably not going to buy it unless you really sure. fancied wasting a rep's time um but to be able to talk techie and get the engineering guys to come in and talk about it is infinitely more interesting yeah um a lot of the informal conversation um there was you know a party after the first night there was a party and some of the in, informal conversation i had with some of the vendors was actually one of the highlights, I would say, um, you get to really talk to them about their strategy with social media and things like this, which is kind of interesting. Not not what you normally think about, you know, talking about. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it it was a bit outside my comfort. I mean, I I'm you know no data center, but I think my strong focus is virtualization. So um, it, it was nice to have at least a one or two you know virtualization focused companies there. So that that worked out quite well. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, just sort of it's finishing up. off. Yeah. I believe the uh, the next Tech Field Day has been announced for Boston in June. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Very happy to say that uh, Ed, Christian, and myself have been invited to it. Yep. Uh, it Excellent. Congratulations. Excellent. Um, so, I would imagine there's probably going to be some, well, someone like VMware, but you know, some. It, it, it's mm-hmm. going to be all around the virtualization piece. Uh, yeah, it sounds so like it's it. A bit more specific, but hopefully there'll be some equally good stuff coming out of it. And uh, if mm-hmm. our aim is to try and do something live uh, from from the event, uh, whether it'll be live streamed or certainly recorded mm-hmm. live. Um, and, yeah, you should uh, definitely try that. I know, I, I know the recent uh, network field day. Um, the the guys record the some of the network guys that were at the tech field day five in my group. They recorded, I think, at least one or two podcasts from the event. So, yeah, that's. I think that'd be a great idea for you guys to do that. Oh, fantastic! We'll we'll keep the ripples uh, going throughout. The world. <laughs> yeah. Awesome! Yeah, should, yeah, great. Should be a couple of uh, really busy but interesting days, I guess. Uh, oh yeah, you going to? I've never been to Boston before. That should be it should be fun. That yeah, should be that cool. The, Twelve years ago, so. Oh, <laughs> You guys will definitely be tired out by the end of it for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a long, long set of days. Um, yeah. But yeah, you, you come home and your brain is buzzing. You'll have a thousand and one ideas. Yeah, that's very true. Well, uh, with that in mind, um, let's uh, wrap up for for the day. Thanks for listening to VSoup. Check us out at uh, www.vsoup.net or uh, follow. Remember to follow us at vsoup underscore podcast.